Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Hello? Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to a very special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth. And tonight is the 23rd of the month of Ramadan. According to various schools of Islam, that makes it a candidate for the night of power, Laylatul Qadr, the night upon which the Quran first descended to the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, and so people stay up late, they go from mosque to mosque, mosque hopping, and uh, pray late into the night, and the barakah descends with the angels and, and, and the ruh, the spirit, on the earth. So, in honor of, of the Night of Power, we're going to have a slightly more religious-than-usual discussion tonight, although we're starting out with science and the question of what science tells us about the differences between the materialist and the other spiritual worldviews. And we're going to move on to a discussion with Eric Wahlberg in the second hour about the Quran. He wrote a sort of a literary criticism, appreciation of the Quran. The Quran is epic enchanter. So we'll be talking Quran as it gets late tonight on the night of power, the potential night of power. We don't really know for sure. It's one of the odd-numbered nights at the end of Ramadan. And uh, tonight is one that's it's been particularly noted by uh, Shia Muslims, apparently, who uh, who favor the 23rd of Ramadan, which is what it is tonight, as the night of power. So let's get going on the show. First, our guest, Josh Middledorf, is one of my very favorite scientists. He is a an unusually lucid communicator, and he has an unusually open and powerful mind. And he just published a piece at his Substack on the origin of life, unsolved or unsolvable. And it goes over this question that's been off debated. Of course, the evolution question has been debated the most. And you know, the question of whether random mutations uh, could drive ever greater complexity over time in the uh, evolution of life. But the origin of life apparently poses at least as big, and Josh seems to argue, an even bigger problem for people trying to explain life naturalistically. And his article is a really good summary. And I've only been able to scratch the surface. It has some good references as well, uh, some hyperlinks you can click. Uh, a really good source of information on that debate. And Josh's conclusion is, well, he's actually siding with us religious folks, it sounds like. But let's hear it from him. So, hey, welcome, Josh Mildarf. Good to have you back on the show. Hello, Kevin. You are also my favorite podcaster. It is always a delight to talk to you interesting perspectives so different from mine and yet we have so much in common and such a easy time exchanging our views well thank you josh that's quite an endorsement uh my your favorite 
radical Muslim truth jihadi 9/11 truther conspiracy podcaster, <laughs> you know, I, I could understand that. But of you know all the podcasters in the world, that I would be number one. Wow, I'm flattered. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're one of the few who has me on consistently. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. Gotta, I guess. <laughs> we got to uh, uh, bend my opinion somewhat. There and you go. I, I want to go off on a tangent for a moment, if I might. I have this idea lately of organizing a day-long gathering, maybe two days gathering of open-minded people to put together what we know about all the things that don't seem to make any sense. Who's doing this to us and what is their end game? What is their motive? And there are people who specialize in reporting some piece of it. Dane Wigington is great about um, chemtrails and climate uh, modification. And Whitney Webb is terrific on corruption and the network of um, child molesters who seem to have inordinate power in the world. And there's uh, Leslie Kane on UFOs. and I guess there are, there are several other people, Stephen Dreer on UFOs. And there aren't, there are so few people who step back and say, is there a way to make sense out of all of these things that, have in common that they're not being reported by the mainstream media. So there must be some overarching principle, somebody who has control over the mainstream media, or at least has them on a leash, um, that is involved in all of these things. Otherwise, they would be reported. They would be part of mainstream uh, conversation. Um, and you're one of the people, I think, uh, it, it would be lovely to have you there and adding what you know and adding your insights to how to make sense of all of this. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. I would certainly sign on for that. And, you know, the first question that you implicitly raised is, is this kind of a monolithic conspiracy, as the Birchers used to say, or could it be a, uh, a multipolar conspiracy in that, you know, for instance, let's say Big Pharma suppresses some stuff that, you know, an investigative reporter is about to put out a big TV report on some of the terrible things that Big Pharma has done with opioids or what have you. And then suddenly, just before it's about to broadcast, the owner of the station or the network quashes it. And then it turns out that, you know, Big Pharma leaned on them because they sell commercials or buy commercials on, on the network or whatever. Uh, I mean, that's happened. That's not just a theoretical example. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. And, and so, 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 I, I'm right, so there can be lots of that. special interests. There can be lots of powerful interests, each one of which is powerful enough to squash discussion of their pet peeve in the mainstream media. Uh, I think of Big Pharma as conventionally very powerful and certainly without the complicity of Big Pharma, we never could have had the grand deception that was COVID in the last few years. And yet, they're not big enough to say that's what explains that this was all about pharma profits. They're not that powerful. There's somebody bigger that used Big Pharma as greasing the wheels to make this happen. So but, but, but in the, the multipolar model, Josh, you, you, could, you could have 
you know, big pharma on the one hand that doesn't like this particular investigative report on, on their what they're doing. And so big pharma could squash that report. But then, you know, somebody who wants to dig into the, you know, CIA, Mossad, whatever complicity in the in the Kennedy assassinations is not going to be suppressed by big pharma. They don't care about that any more than the CIA really cared about the uh, Florida TV station doing the investigative report on big pharma. But the CIA, whoever those guys, they have even more power so they can keep it out of the media, too, through their channels. So there could be lots of different power centers, each one of which are actually kind of in rivalry with each other to some extent but all of which are powerful enough to keep stuff out of the media. I agree that's a really good model, and certainly it's not one model. When you think of the mobs controlling Chicago, it was not one single leader who was in in charge of everything. There There were working together while they were murdering each other on the side. And you, you got to think that that a, a lot of that is going on. So I, I'm completely in agreement. And yet there are some of these things that are just so strange. How do you explain crop circles? What's that about? Cattle yeah. mutilations. Yeah, right. Who is mutilating the cattle and leaving these body, bodies with surgical removal of the heart or, or uh, the tongue and no blood? Inside anywhere, and what what kind of technology is that, and what's it for? Uh, there, are, mm-hmm. you know, there are a handful of examples like this that I just think they cry out for explanation. And maybe, as you say, there's no one overarching explanation. And yet, the thing they have in common is that the mainstream media are not talking about it, and that suggests that there's some commonality that all of them, in some way have uh, a hold over the people who are reporting our news. Absolutely. You know, you could actually come up with a kind of a theological conspiracy theory about this and, uh, you know, say all of these these various forces are sort of demonic and allied to the shaitan out of the Bilah one way or another, whether they know it or not. So I guess if I had to do a monolithic conspiracy theory, I'd probably lean towards something like that. And in that vein is um, Charles Eisenstein, who I'm, I'm a real follower, and he has sort of a metaphysical view of all this. And he said, these are things that need to happen. They're not institutions or people behind them. The events have a life of their own. And it's a kind of destiny that's playing itself out. I'm, I'm, don't hold him responsible for my words, but that, that's how I hear what he's saying. And, and, you know, that's another legitimate view. I spent yesterday visiting somebody whose name I'm sure you know, and I don't want to mention it here because she's not publicly associated with this view. But when I talk to her about this, she says, it's aliens. No human behaves this way. And they want our planet. And this is what they're doing to get it. So <laughs> there's another... <laughs> It sounds Another like position. that that book, uh, The Threat, uh, by oh, what's that guy's name? The the uh, well, the guy who who wrote The Threat. Who he was a leading academic uh, folklorist studying UFOs, and then he you know, so so he was very respectable and so on. I was I had to read him for my dissertation research. You know, I was researching miracle stories from Sufi saints, so I had to read all the stories about the uncanny, miraculous type events from different cultures and so 
these are big ones in a lot of cultures, these UFO stories. So I read this guy. God, I'm, I'm really I'm forgetting his name here. I'll, I'll just pull, I'll just pull it up for you because it's it's a heck of a book. The, the yeah, when he I, I don't know this, that book at all. And I, really, I think yeah, he, thanks. Yeah, he's a he's a professor at like SUNY or something, and uh, he uh, let's see, interesting. Wow, this it, it, it's actually very. Uh, uh, comes down, it's been downgraded in the Gula rankings uh, not too far back of David Jacobs. That's right. He, yeah, he was a Sunni or something professor who ended up, you know, he published this book saying, okay, this, I finally figured out what's happening with UFOs and uh, it's really bad news. They're taking over the planet. They're doing a hybridization program and uh, they seem to tell a lot of their victims whom they, uh, they kidnap that some at some point the planet's going to really you know undergo a pretty terrible catastrophe and uh, the only ones who will be able to survive it will be the the hybrids and so on and so forth so anyway it's it's uh it's it's a very interesting book all of the sort of you know negative takes on ufos and aliens uh, i'd say that book is number one yeah and i don't discount it but i also don't count stephen greer who says the aliens are looking out for us. They're not actively interfering because that's against their religion, but they're on our side, really, and they are preventing us from destroying ourselves with uh, biological weapons and nuclear weapons while they watch us overcome the, the hurdle to becoming the next level of civilization, which presumably includes psychic phenomena and connections to each other, which are denied by our present day science and embrace of technologies that are now suppressed. Well, that's what Paul Hillier says. I, I had him on the show a couple of times. He's the former Canadian. Oh, he's a, yeah, minister. he's a wonderful resource. What did he yeah. say? Yeah, well, he, he, he said that after years and decades of trying to figure it out, you know, who was telling the truth on this, that he concluded that the ETs are basically the good guys and that the earthly uh, powers are the bad guys. And that once enough people wake up to this, then we'll be invited to join the Galactic Federation, which is the good guys. And I guess you could sort of supplement his view. I don't know if he, he said this clearly, but it really implies that there are these negative demonic forces allied to the current rulers of Earth, and some of those might be, you know, ET or extra dimensional as well. So it's not quite as simple as that all of the ETs are the good guys. It's more like there's sort of a federation, Star Trek style federation of the relatively decent ones that can deal with each other and so on. And then there are the pirates. Like so, the federation has some kind of a hands-off policy where they want to allow primitive planets like Earth to develop at their own pace and so it's, we're like a wildlife preserve and then there are the poachers <laughs> and the pirates are the bad guys the ones that come in and, and uh, kidnap people and stuff and you know, you know mutilate the cows and all of that uh, and they're in in cahoots with the earthly rulers who have signed over with the bad guys so anyway that seems to be what hellier's model would suggest and it makes as much sense as any which isn't saying that much so i'm i'm on the board of want to know dot info uh, that's Fred Burks's group, from whom I've just learned a whole lot. And that that view of the aliens is is his as well. Um, he says there are bad guys out there, but there is a, the Galactic Federation, and they seem to be in charge, and they're watching over us, waiting for us to get our act together enough that we're worthy to join them. 
You know, I, I didn't know you knew Fred Burks. He's he's great. I'd love to have him back on the show. It's been probably at least a decade. Yeah, I'm I'm connected with him. Uh, you know, I was in that um, car collision a year and a half ago. And just before then, I went hiking with Fred and we went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back. And I, I think of that as the last time I was able to uh, inhabit my body in, in, in that way to climb 5,000 feet down and 5,000 feet up in a, in a day. And uh, Fred and I have another hiking date this summer. Well, oh, very cool. Well, yeah, if I if I don't contact him before then, say hello to him for me. I really admire him. He's a former presidential translator who kind of uh, <laughs> got fed up with the BS like so many of us have and uh, became an important guy in the 9-11 truth movement and indeed in a whole lot of truth movements. You know, if you, if you organize one of these kinds of events you're talking about, Josh, where people would look into the, all of these things and try to figure out the interconnections, he would be a fantastic resource. Yeah, of course. In, in fact, he's the one through whom I'm trying to organize it. Um, okay. Want to know dot <laughs> info. Want to know dot info. Want to know dot info. Yeah. yeah Putting highly, out a, highly recommended. An ad. Yep. So let's 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 get into this this theological question, and and you know maybe there's there's a connection uh, there, but you uh, just published this article on the origin of life, unsolved or unsolvable, and it looks like you're kind of implicitly siding with the folks who are derided by the dominant materialistic scientific paradigm as, you know, crazy, you know, creationists. You know, if you turn on public radio, any relate, you know, discussion of these creationists is going to be derogatory and and likewise in most of the mainstream media. But in and, and I I wasn't even aware until I read your article that the debate about the actual origin of life as opposed to the evolution of life so can be interpreted the way you're interpreting it, which is that it's just seems there's there's no known way that these various problems in a kind of a naturalistic explanation of life originating can be overcome. There's a lot to unpack there, and we have plenty of time to unpack it. But let me introduce myself by saying I'm a scientist and I'm looking at this from a perspective of science. Um, so it can mean three different things. A scientist can mean somebody who believes that the community of science has it right and that the community of science is, uh, is our best resource for uh, finding out what's true. And I'm sort of on board with that, but I know that the community of science makes big mistakes as well. Another way that people say, I believe in science, they think that what we're, what we've discovered so far is the be all and end all. And that these paradigms that we've developed in the 20th century will never be overturned. And I think that's really dangerous. Uh, it's deadly to science. There's a third sense. I believe in evidence and logic as the best tools that we have for figuring out what's going on. Um, I believe there's an objective reality with some qualifications about um, – I'm not sure how objective it is and how much our minds can affect what we think of as objective reality. But I'm, I'm coming at this from a scientific perspective and not from a religious perspective. So 
more than that, I'd say that the field of the origin of life has really been uh, stalled because there are these two sides. There are the biblical people who say, look, you can't make life out of non-life, and therefore Christ rode from the dead on the third day. And I, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's on the other hand, you have, these, you have these um, scientific materialists who say, we know that life must have arisen from no, non-life. It's just how it happened. We're just filling in the details. And I think that's wrong, too. I think the, the well, thesis that's almost of, as fundamentalist as the Christian view. That you absolutely. Just, it's right. worse. It's, it's really worse than the fundamentalist. And one of the people I quote in the um, in this article is Jim Tour, who is a fundamentalist Christian, but he's also a synthetic chemist par excellence. He's really the best person, the best resource in this. And he shred, tears to shreds the, the idea that we're close to understanding how life arose. Um, and in the debates between the people who are on the side of science and Jim Tour, who's on the side of uh, Christianity, I'd say uh, I'm siding with Jim. And not only that, he really makes an effort to keep his religious views out of the talks that he gives when he's talking pure science. I really respect that. He just talks chemistry, straight chemistry, and doesn't mention God when he gives some of his talks. And meanwhile, the, the people on the other side are not able to keep their, I'd call them religious views, dogmatic views in any case, out of it and they just come from we know that it must have happened it's just a question of figuring out how and uh, i'd say that that's more dangerous and more dogmatic than the, the christian view yeah I, I would definitely agree honestly i actually have not so many disagreements with uh, with christian views in general although some of the detailed things about you know rising on the third day and such in which i'm not so sure about but yeah so so it's, it's interesting that a, a fundamentalist christian chemist is delivering such a what you're you're taking from a, you know, just looking at the science such a strong argument and I've, I've had the same sense also reading some of the other people on the side of the so-called creationists that you know, some of them seem to be arguing from a very strong position and maybe, so go over some of the details about, you know, where he's making arguments that are, are actually uh, stronger than those of his opponents. So, uh, again, to back up and create some context, there is, as you mentioned, uh, plenty of controversy about how evolution works. And it's a much stickier question whether the Darwinian process or the expanded Darwinian process, as we now understand it, is capable of producing all the varieties of life that we now see. Um, but I'm separating that, and I'm saying let's um, let's l- just look at the pre-Darwinian phase, where there was no mutation and selection because uh, we didn't have anything that could reproduce itself yet. And I'm asking the question: How did the first self-reproducing object appear, a chemical object or chemical physical object that only had the resources that you would find on a, a nascent earth, the 
trace chemicals that might be made by lightning and by uh, photochemical reactions and the abundance, carbon dioxide, uh, ammonia, methane, and water that were available. And then, of course, many trace elements that life needs were available. So I'm, I'm trying to focus on the question, where did the first system come from that was capable of reproducing itself in that environment? And my bottom line is that some of the best minds in science have been asking this question in the laboratory for 70 years now. For 70 years, they've been trying to create a system that can reproduce itself. And they have not even been able to reproduce, to, to create a system. Engineering, you know, using all of the tools that they have, they've not been able to design and uh, demonstrate a system that can reproduce itself, even given bio biomolecules from our modern world. You give them a, an abundant supply of biomolecules from our modern world, and they still can't create something that can reproduce itself, let alone something that could reproduce itself without any of those molecules, just the very simple molecules that were available in the nascent Earth. And that, to me, is the most telling thing, that um, if they can't design something that can reproduce itself, how can we believe that something could have come together by chance in the early Earth that... Uh, was capable of reproducing itself and kickstarting the Darwinian process. That's my bottom line. Yeah, that's a, a, a very succinct statement of it. It, it does recall to me the, the Quranic verse that uh, those who you call upon other than God could never create even so much as a fly, even if they were to all come together to work on it. And then if a fly took snatched anything away from them, they couldn't ever retrieve it from the fly. So how powerless are they who invoke and those invoked? And so that uh, inability to create a replicating system from which the Darwinian process could begin does seem interesting. What, what, what is their uh, response to that? What's, what's the, uh, what, do they argue that, well, just, you know, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, that we can't really know what the conditions were back then and so on and so forth. But, uh, and why would that be wrong? Well, I'm, I don't know that that's wrong, but uh, I'm beginning to see the, think that the preponderance of evidence is that it just couldn't have happened that way. And there's no they that have a monolithic position. There are many people. Um, Francis Crick of Watson and Crick, who discovered the... Um, double helix, and a few years later, cracked the genetic code. Uh, was, I think the greatest mind in biology in the 20th century. He made respectable the idea that life came to Earth on a meteor or um, panspermia is the idea, that there's life all over the universe. It didn't necessarily evolve early in, um, in the history of the Earth. And one of the things that are that mitigates in favor of that is that very early in the history of Earth, life appeared. The Earth is four and a half billion years old, and four and a half billion years old ago, it was so hot um, that nothing like 
life as we know it could have survived. And four billion years is the oldest fossil that we've been able to find. So there's evidence that life appeared in that first half billion years after life for, after the Earth um, condensed out of hot matter that had come together in the early solar system. So just about as early as it could possibly have appeared. There's one piece of evidence that Crick took as pointing to, well, there wasn't time for life to have formed on Earth. It probably came in on a meteor. And there are bacterial spores that could conceivably have survived uh, a long trip in space and uh, maybe even survived the hot the blazing hot trip through the atmosphere during those final few seconds. Uh, so there, there's one one train of thought. And of course, people who think that you have to, well, yeah, but life had to originate someplace in order to find itself in space. So it just kicks the can down the road. Uh, where was the environment where life evolved? And there are many other people with diverse views. There are people who say, well, you know, there wasn't reproduction, there was metabolism for a long time. And it wasn't enclosed in a cell. It was um, a whole pond full of chemicals was performing metabolism long before it divided into cells. And there are people who say the opposite, that on the seafloor, there were these um, thermal vents where energetic minerals were bubbling up from the center of the earth and they could have presumably provided the energy that life needed to get its start. And then there were these pores in um, rocks around the thermal vents that would provide um, test tubes where many, many different combinations could try out until some of them uh, by chance, were able to reproduce themselves. Um, I, I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of the great diversity of ideas that people have um, about how life could have gotten started. And as, as I say, they're all vague ideas, they're all promising, and yet none of them has been able to demonstrate the the first prerequisite of life. It has to be able to make a copy of itself. And we just haven't been able to engineer that in, in any of the environments that uh, people propose. Interesting. Well, you, you talk about auto-catalyzing hypercycles in your article, uh, meaning these chemical processes that kind of reproduce uh, uh, themselves, a self-reproducing chemical process. And you say that the most brilliant minds in this research have not been able to engineer this kind of self-replicating cycle of molecules. And the question arises, is this simply like, can we trust that not being able to actually engineer it, meaning make it happen, is the same thing as not being able to sort of blueprint it or make a case that it's possible? And how does the debate you know, deal with, with that? I, I don't know anything about it. So just ask you to sort of fill in uh, some of the specifics about the people who've tried to engineer these self-reproducing uh, chemical or molecule, molecular cycles. Well, the, the simplest form of life would be some 
molecule that can make a copy of itself. And people have tried that, and it just doesn't seem to be possible. You think of DNA. How does DNA copies itself? It's the only molecule that we know in nature that copies itself. How does it copy itself? It has an enzyme called a replicase that it's almost like a, a little living robot, but it's a molecule. It's a molecule that crawls along the DNA, divides it in half, pulls a nucleic acid out of the soup and adds it in just the right place and makes one strand of DNA into two strands. It's a very complicated molecule that does this uh, DNA replicase, and it's a protein. Where does that protein come from? A DNA, DNA can't re reproduce itself without a replicase. Uh, and where does the replicase come from? Well, you can't make a replicate. We don't know how to make a replicase without, uh, it's called a, a ribosome. A ribosome is a, an organelle. It's, it means it's, it's like an organ of your body, but it's an organelle because it's within a cell. It performs a specified function inside a cell the way in your liver or your lungs perform a specified function inside you. So there's an organelle called a ribosome, and its job is to take messenger RNA that comes along with a copy of a piece of the DNA, take one gene at a time is copied from the DNA. It goes out into the cytoplasm of the cell and finds a ribosome. The RNA, the messenger RNA, mRNA, which has become quite famous in the last few years. Yeah, the mRNA finds a, a ribosome and inserts itself in the ribosome. And there's a code for which each of the three letters, each three-letter word in the in the RNA is translated to one unit, one amino acid unit that's used to construct a protein. So it's read three by three by three by three, and it creates one by one by one by one unit in the protein. And it strings together usually hundreds to thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of these amino acids to make a functioning protein. This is the way we make a replicase is with all of that machinery. We don't know how to make a replicase without all of that uh, intricate machinery. And we don't know how to copy DNA without a replicase. I'm, I'm sort of getting off on a tangent here. I think what I was trying to say is the idea of a molecule that can reproduce itself just doesn't seem to work. So what people have tried to do is maybe there's a handful of molecules where A and B can reproduce C, and C and D together can reproduce A, and E and F and G together produce um, can catalyze B. And th there's an, a closed cycle there, so that together these 10 or 20 or 100 different chemicals are all capable of catalyzing the uh, creation of each other. And I think that's the most promising idea. It's a general idea. We don't specify whether those are amino acids or proteins or whether they're nucleic acids or something completely different. Life didn't have to start with the form that it has now. It's a very general idea that you have a set of chemicals that together can reproduce each other. That's They call that a hypercycle, and it's a, a basic 
premise for how how life got started. So there have been a lot of people trying to uh, engineer a hypercycle. Can you come up with a list of chemicals, each of which can catalyze a copy of some other chemical so that together they form a closed system? So how would we know when they've been working on this, enough great minds have been working on this long enough with with little enough progress that we can start to think that maybe it's just not possible? Well, exactly. Isn't that the $64,000 question? And I'm going out on a limb here saying I've seen enough that for my mind, it's not credible that something could have come up by chance that we haven't been able to engineer and with all the engineering that we've put into it. But I you know if some tomorrow somebody comes up with, oh, here's the way to engineer it, then I'm dead wrong. Okay. Well, if anybody has uh, and they're listening to the show, just get in touch with us. <laughs> Call the Nobel Prize Committee. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we'll, we'll put you through to them. <laughs> so uh, uh, how about the issue of uh, chirality or handedness? This, this is uh, – very interesting that the these life uses only you know one type of molecule that's like the equivalent of, of right-handed and, and completely ignores all the left-handed ones whereas both are equally prevalent in nature i mean what do we make of that and then what's its relevance to this debate about the origin of life so you have simple molecules like H2O and CO2 that are completely symmetric. If you look at them in the mirror, they're exactly the same as they are um, if you don't look at them in the mirror. Uh, but as soon as you get to combinations that have a lot of atoms in them, and especially these carbons that have four bonds coming out in four different directions, any carbon that has four different things attached to it, different things, not like carbon with four hydrogens is methane, that doesn't count. But if the thing, the four things that are attached are all different, then there are two versions. There's uh, a mirror image version, which is different from the original version. And in all of the chemistry that's inorganic, that you can imagine just arising from um, the natural chemicals you see on a, a nascent earth, they all form mixtures of left-handed and right-handed. The left-handed and right-handed have the same chemistry, the same energy. Uh, everything about them is the same, so they form in, in equal quantities. But the way life works, a lot of the biochemistry inside us is based on the shape of molecules, very, very specific shapes that fit like lock and key or the double helix that fits exactly if you have the the right um, A opposite T and C opposite G, you get this wonderful fit that that holds just tightly enough together to keep the double helix bound to each other, but it's also capable of coming apart when it needs to replicate. Uh, it's because the shapes are exactly complementary and they fit into each other. If you want to create molecules that are complex and have a very predictable shape so that you know they fit into each other, you can't use what's called racemic mixtures or, or mixtures of equal amounts of left-handed and right-handed components. You have to use either all left-handed or all right-handed components to 
to make this, uh, to make these chains that fit together in a predictable way. Because you can imagine if you have a chain that turns left here and right there, it's not going to be the same shape as one that turns left, 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 left. So life has made uh, explicit use of handedness of molecules and all of the proteins, all of the nucleic, the, sorry, all of the amino acids that form proteins are left-handed amino acids. And all of the nucleic acids that form DNA are right-handed. Uh, and if you tried to make DNA out of a mixture of left-handed and right-handed, or if you tried to make proteins out of a mixture of left-handed and right-handed, it just wouldn't work at all. The, the shape would not be predictable. So this idea of having exclusively one-handed components that you piece together also in a way that's very specific and the handedness is controlled at every stage, that's essential to life as we know it. And the question is, where did that come from in a world where uh, left-handed and right-handed molecules were originally existing on the earth in, in equal quantities? There's a famous experiment by Yuri and Miller in 1952 that kicked off this whole science of uh, abiotic, abiotic creation. Uh, they took a mixture of ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide, and water. They passed electric currents through it to simulate, well, this would, what lightning would do, and found a richness of simple organic molecules in there, including all of the 20 amino acids that we find as building blocks of life. And that really gave people confidence in the early days. Uh, they thought, oh, in this one simple experiment, really right around the time that we were discovering the biochemical secrets of life in the 1950s, we had this experiment that was capable of producing all of the components of proteins. And that was considered very optimistic. We thought we were going to make great progress rapidly toward how did the first living things uh, come about. Um, all of those mixtures of amino acids that came out of the Miller and Urey experiment were racemic mixtures, equal amounts of left-handed and right-handed amino acids. And if they had ever coupled together to make a protein, the protein would have a completely unpredictable shape because it would turn left here and right there instead of always being able to make the same predictable left-handed turn. Um, so one of the hurdles that life needs to get over in order to uh, get to where we are now is that you have to find a way to separate just the left-handed molecules from this equal mixture of left-handed and right-handed and that seems hard to imagine what could do that. You need some kind of a, a difference engine that could sort through and separate. And that re almost, it seems to require an intelligence. Um, well, Jim Tour makes a big deal out of this. And it, he says, and, and I agree, agree with it, that it's, it's really hard to imagine a mixture of all left-handed coming out of 
this chemical soup that had equal amount of left and right handed. And my answer to that is it's not, it didn't necessarily happen that way. Perhaps the first living system, the first self-reproducing system was made of equal amounts of left-handed and right-handed, or maybe it was made out of molecules that were simple enough that the left-handed and right-handed version of them was the same. Um, and then in order to, then you can um, entrust a Darwinian process of variation and selection to say, well, look, it's a lot easier to do our chemistry if we just work with left-handed or just work with right-handed and one of them by chance won out. And so it may be that homochirality is the word for only left-handed. It may be that homochirality evolved after the origin of life rather than uh, part of the part of the very first self-reproducing system. And uh, I, I'd say we don't have to charge the, f the first reproducing system. You, you know, you, you can create it out of all left-handed or uh, you can create it out of a mixture of left-handed and right-handed. I haven't seen anybody create a hypercycle, a system that can reproduce itself either with all left-handed or with a mixture of left-handed and right-handed. So in a sense, it's it's a moot question whether homochirality evolved later or whether it was part of the first living thing. And, and either way, it looks like there's still a, a big uh, problem in, in assembly. Yeah, it's it's certainly a, a big it's a big hurdle to make the first living thing, and we don't know whether um, separating left-handed from right-handed was part of the issue that had to be resolved in order to create the first living thing. So in your article, you tried to get around some of these problems, or rather you didn't try, but you just, you mentioned that there's the most uh, advanced self-replicating system that you've discovered was working with RNA uh, and that a, an RNA molecule 200 nucleotides long is able to reassemble pieces of itself to reform the full sequence. Uh, how does that work? The, there's this idea of the RNA world. Um, we have, in modern life, we have a separation between the information-carrying molecules, which are DNA and RNA, and the um, enzymes and catalytic molecules, which are all proteins and it's hard to imagine both of those coming together originally. So people said, well, is there a class of molecules that could do both? And indeed, there are some RNA molecules that have a catalytic function in addition to carrying um, information. RNA is sometimes used to catalyze other reactions. It's called a ribozyme. Like an enzyme is a protein. A ribozyme is something that works like a protein uh, it, it works like an enzyme, but it's made of nucleic acids instead of being made of amino acids. So uh, a prominent area of the thought says, well, the first living things were made of RNA alone, uh, which had the function of both 
an autocatalytic uh, um, function and also an information carrying function. It had both functions. And so the question is, well, can you create uh, an RNA molecule or a system of RNA molecules that can reproduce itself? And I, I agree that and that's a, a really important place to look. They've been looking for about 30 years now. The idea of an RNA world is 30 years old. And I cite the closest they've come to a self-reproducing system is an RNA that's 200 units long. You got to get all the 200 units in the right order. And what it's able to do is to make a copy of itself if you can give, if you give it two halves, two pieces, each of which is maybe uh, 80 and 120 units long or something. It can piece those back together to make a copy of itself. And in one sense, that's, it's very impressive. It's, it's the closest we have to a molecule that can reproduce itself. On the other hand, just to get the pieces, to get this, the 120 and the 80 pieces, um, they're fantastically improbable that you would get them all in the right order. And of course, those are all right-handed nucleic acids. So you would have to solve the homochirality problem. So it's a proof of principle, but it's not a candidate for the first living organism. Uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine what would be doing all that uh, selecting back in a prebiotic environment. Well, how about the issue of life without an ecosystem? You know, you actually expanded my mind quite a bit when we had our, our early discussions about your work with aging and the kind of evolutionary view of, uh, of aging as a way of sort of protecting ecosystems from a kind of, you know, a cancerous uh, overgrowth of sort of one super fit uh, biotic entity uh, that would sort of devour everything. And the reason that we don't see that is that uh, they wouldn't be able to, you know, any, anything that actually got that good at <clears throat> grabbing energy from the environment and, you know, beating all the competition would actually kill off its own ecosystem. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's my theory of aging, which is my uh, claim to fame it, well, in the evolutionary it, biology world. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, it, it definitely uh, impacted me, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It answers a number of questions, but... Uh, so, so ecosystems are really basic, and you raise the question of how life could possibly begin without an ecosystem to be part of, because all the life that we have now, with one possible exception, I'll let you explain that, seems to depend on being just one little piece of a really big, complex ecosystem. Yeah, um, so th this is a subject on which I have really strong feelings, and thanks for giving me a platform. I think that Biology has made tremendous advances in the world of biochemistry over the last 50 years, and we've kind of gotten nearsighted about it. And we think of life as all about biochemistry, and our advanced knowledge of biochemistry has left ecology, the big picture behind. How do different species relate to each other? How I think there's just as much complexity and just as rich a knowledge base that we have yet to discover in ecology as the one that we've already um, discovered in biochemistry. And a consequence of that 
is that we tend to think biochemically. We tend to think, well, um, we can make our own ecosystem. We can plant a, a tree farm and give every, give it everything that it needs to um, to grow. And we don't distinguish that a tree farm is nothing like a forest. A tree farm is uh, a bunch of really unhealthy trees that could not live long term, but maybe they can live for one generation or two generations. Um, and the most relevant piece of this is that we are in the process of paving over the earth and species are going extinct at uh, a rate not seen since the dinosaurs when out of commission 65 million years ago. Um, we are in the sixth global extinction and people tend to think, well, that's just too bad for all these animals that we're going to lose. But humans, we're going to find a way to survive. We'll just turn the earth into one big farm and we'll just keep the species that are useful for us. And it's a really dangerous way to think. We have no idea how to um, – well, monoculture farming just doesn't work very well. And we need the bees. We need the fungi. We we don't understand the relationships among many species that are need to, needed to keep every species alive. The idea that we can create uh, an artificial earth that's just – able to support humanity in an optimum way is a really dangerous conceit. We are dependent on an ecosystem. All of life, every living thing that we know of is dependent on an ecosystem. And the idea that we can engineer an ecosystem to keep ourselves alive, even if millions of species die out, is really wrong and really dangerous. You know, we tried to do that once in... Uh, Biosphere 2 in the early 1980s, and it was it was a disaster. We uh, enclosed uh, a few acres in a big glass dome and said, all right, try to live uh, with all the plants and the animals and the fungi that you need. We'll just seed them in there and live in a self-contained way for a few years. And as I say, it was a complete disaster. Within a few weeks, they ran out of oxygen and they just poked holes and they, they broke windows so that they could let some oxygen in. They could they could breathe, and uh, even with getting stuffy in here. Oxygen, yeah, even so, we don't know enough about ecosystems to create an artificial ecosystem. Um, the one the one species that I mentioned in there was. Um, A kind of bacteria, cyanobacteria, which were the first green things that are capable of photosynthesis. And I asked my friend, who's a real microbiologist, about that the other day. He said, oh, nothing doing. They need an ecosystem just as much as you and I do. Uh, maybe they're a little more independent, but they're not anymore. They're not able to live on their own. There are all kinds of biomolecules and uh, trace minerals that they need just to make their um, chlorophyll and do their energy transforming function. So uh, I need to correct that in my blog, I suppose. It's a, it, mm -hmm. it, even that is not a good example. All of so, life so as much we for know the it. individualist cyanobacteria. <laughs> you, you bet.
all of life as we know it is dependent on an ecosystem. Yeah, well, that's that's probably a good place to leave it um, for a, a takeaway, uh, because I think that's you know that's the most relevant thing here. Whether or not scientists ever figure out how life began, uh, that's probably not quite as high on the list of urgent things to attend to as making sure that we don't screw up the ecosystems that we are currently seemingly screwing up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we well. Thanks the for the opportunity to talk about some of my favorite subjects, and I will certainly get back to you if if I'm able to organize this conference to look at the big questions and uh, sounds good, Josh. Here. Yeah, I'd love to participate in that. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye for now. That's Josh Middledorf. He's at middledorf.substack.com. M I T T E L D O R F.substack.com. I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com. Also, KevinBarrett.substack.com. Back in the second hour with Eric Wahlberg. So stick around.